What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, Dennis speaks with none other than Peter Asher about his time with James Taylor and the six albums they made for Warner Brothers Records between 1970 and 1976. Good night, you moonlight ladies. Rock of sweet baby Jane. Deep greens and blues are the colors I choose. Won't you let me go down in my dreams and rock of our sweet baby James? Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. I'll bet you cannot guess what I'm doing right now. Well, Captain Obvious, you're on Rhino.com. When am I not? In fact, you know, like a broken record, my browser is stuck on it. Well, it's my homepage. And for good reason, because it has so much information. If you're a music head, like we are, you can see all the new releases that are coming up. For instance, there's some great stuff that's been recently announced. There's a lost Miles Davis album, Rubber Band, which is coming out. The Replacements, Dead Man's Pop, 4CD, 1LP, Deluxe Set. People that didn't like that last Replacements record are going to love this because this is the way it was supposed to sound. And you know, I heard through the grapevine there's going to be a two-part Rhino podcast on that release. There is going to be. So something to look forward to out there, all you Replacements fans. Best of Morrissey came out on limited edition clear vinyl, a 2LP set. The Doors, the Soft Parade 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition is coming out, and there's going to be all kinds of bonus material on that. So there's something for everybody coming out from Rhino. There'll be lots more to come, but beyond seeing what's coming up, from Rhino on Rhino.com. Of course, you've got Album of the Day. You can check out any of our podcasts there. There are contests. You can listen to other interviews. You can read archival interviews with artists. You can stream content. You can watch content. There's great videos. There's so much to dive into headfirst musically at Rhino.com. It's basically breakfast, lunch, and dinner for music nerds. There you go. Get ready, Rich. Today. It's going to be a sweet podcast, baby. Well, you had a special conversation with a music impresario, did you not? I did. And I, you know, I'm I'm not always a fanboy, but when it comes to Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, who is also producer of several of James Taylor's original Warner Brothers albums and was his manager for a long time, I mean, it was, it was just amazing. Speaking of James Taylor, that was the topic of discussion. Am I correct? Indeed. The complete Warner Brothers albums, 1970 to 1976, remastered by Peter and Bernie Grudman, who is one of the most legendary people when it comes 
to remastering records. Artists of the stature of James Taylor, it's it's due. This remastering of his Warner Brothers albums, it was time for it. And it's in a wonderful box set. Now you can either get it as a 6-CD or a 6-LP version. It's out now, and there's also digital versions. You can stream this on your favorite streaming provider. Well, how about we get into this conversation you had with Peter and hear some of this great music that he and James Taylor made together. For those who are not like me and holding a 45 of a world without love in their hand, can you give us just a little bit about you before we we get into this wonderful box set? My beginning in the music business, of course, was indeed as a singer. You know, I'm, I met and made friends with a, another a pupil at the same school. We were at Westminster School together, and that was the beginning of Peter and Gordon, myself and Gordon Waller. And that was that was kind of where it all began from a music business career point of view. Right. And and to shorten the story, you had some great hits. You uh, did covers by some pretty famous artists and you found your way to Apple Records where you were head of A&R. Yes. I mean, I, I, the minute I was first in the recording studio myself as an artist, which I suppose was 1964 when we, we did our first record, I knew right then and there that I wanted to to be a record producer. I loved what producers could do. I loved the studio. I loved the technology of it. I loved the idea of hiring musicians much better than yourself and being able to tell them what to do. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> and so I wanted to be a producer. And, um, and uh, you know, I had some help in that regard. Now, of course, it's, it's hard to imagine, but if you want to be a record producer now, you just get a laptop and, and, and make some records. Indeed. And show people what your ideas are. Back then without musicians to play on them and a studio to record in, there was no such uh, opportunity whatsoever. So I was very lucky that I did get to produce some records. And and it was on that basis that Paul McCartney was aware of some of the work I'd done and had actually played on the first record I ever produced because I'd asked him to. And so he then asked me, as, as the Apple idea took place, that uh, he asked me if I wanted to to produce some records for Apple Records if it got going. And and I said, yes, I would love to. And then as it grew near and it got an official name of Apple and it got the logo and the whole thing, that's when he said, well, why don't you be head of A&R for the label? You know, which is, as you know, the industry term for being overall responsible for who gets signed, what records get made, who produces what, what songs people do and all of that. So I gladly accepted his offer. And then, of course, that leads into the whole story of how James and I met and, and all that stuff. This box set, which I'm holding in my hand, I actually have the, the as the kids say, the vinyl, but the records, you know, is, is, is quite amazing. And what I did last night, geek that I am, is I pulled out all my original recordings, put them on the turntable, and then put them next to, to this new set. And it was... Oh, how interesting. Tip, tell me, how, was the, how did the A-B go? Who's, who survived? You know what? You survived, Peter. <laughs> One of the things that people probably don't know is how this all happened, that, that James Taylor started out, you know, in Greenwich Village, moved to London, and then that's really where this podcast and story begins. Uh, yes. I mean, James was in New York in a band, and, uh, you know, it was when that band broke up that he decided to go to London. He, he had a girlfriend in London he thought he could stay with. Turned out he couldn't in the end, but he thought he could. And so that's why when when this band, The Flying Machine, broke up in disarray, 
they had managers they didn't like and they'd signed to a record label and made half an album that kind of went under, I think, and all that sort of thing. And several of them were strung out on drugs. I think all the vicissitudes that New York had to offer, they had suffered from. So the band broke up and James left for London. And it was a coincidence that a, a member of that band, The Flying Machine, with James, was a, a brilliant guitar player by the name of Danny Korchmar, who had previously played in a band called The King Bees, who had accompanied my duo, Peter and Gordon, on several American tours. And during that time, Danny Korchmar, or Cooch, as we called him, and I had become close friends. And we'd stayed in touch after that time. That's why when James went to London, Cooch gave him my phone number and said, here's a friend of mine who lives in London, you should give him a call, which James did and kind of called me out of the blue. I was sitting in my flat one night and the phone rang and this very pleasant sounding American introduced himself as Cooch's friend James. And he came over to my flat the following night and played me a tape he'd made and then picked up uh, my guitar and played me a couple of additional songs and blew me away. I mean, I was astonished and super impressed. Uh, he didn't even know at the time that I got this brand new job. So we had this peculiar conversation, which was me saying, well, oddly enough, I'm head of A&R for this new record label. Now I can sign people. You know, would you like a record deal? And James said, yes, please, I'd love one. And that was it. <laughs> oh, it was if it was only much that, that easy these days, right? It was. I mean, it was. Yes, exactly. And of course, then I had to explain to him whose record label it was and, and uh, take him into the office to meet the Beatles a few days later without really thinking about how peculiar that must seem to him because... You know, I'm sure the, the the world was full of Americans jumping on planes to London going, I'm going to go to London and meet the Beatles. Oh, sure you are. But that's exactly what happened to James. When you first met him, what did he play for you? Were there any songs that we know in the repertoire at that time? All of them. Uh, the songs he played me that day in, in our sitting room were uh, Something in the Way She Moves, Something's Wrong, Night Owl, Knocking Around the Zoo. I forget which ones he played off tape and which ones he played for me live, but they were all there. Uh, most of the songs on the Apple album. Not, interestingly, Carolina in my mind. He wrote that later on after he was staying with me. Because I forgot to mention, that day he played me all those songs was also the day he revealed he had nowhere to live and he moved into our flat for about six months. Wow. Um, and at one point, he took some time off, went on holiday to the island of Ibiza, and that's where he wrote Carolina in my mind. I remember him coming back, moving back into the flat with us and playing me Carolina, which he'd written while he was away. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Can't you just feel the moonshine? Ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Yes, I'm gone to Carolina. You took quite the chance, and you moved to the U.S. with James. Yes, I, I decided to leave Apple because I knew this guy, Alan Klein, who was coming in to be the new boss. I knew about him, mostly through the Stones and through people I knew in New York. And I, my impression was very negative. I thought that Paul McCartney was right in his opposition to Alan Klein coming in. But John, as you know, is, is now history convinced the other Beatles that he was the man for the job. Alan Klein was appointed head of Apple. When that announcement was made, I resigned. I wrote a letter of resignation to Apple. So I left before Alan Klein arrived. Though he did come in for one sort of preliminary meeting and, and he and James did meet for a few minutes. James didn't 
think much of him either. So James and I decided that if Alan Klein was coming in, we were going to leave. So James wanted to go home to America anyway. And we decided that I should become James's manager as well as his producer. And we set off for America. James stopped on the East Coast for a, a bit of rehab that he was in the mood for at the time. And, and I uh, headed out to L.A. to make a new record deal with uh, the legendary Warner Brothers Records. And now you have to make a record. So how did you go about working with James to kind of figure out what that record was going to be? Well, uh, we had some of the songs, of course. We had most of the songs. And and uh, the previous album, the Apple album, I had made quite complicated. I had overdubbed a lot of different kinds of music on it. I'd put strings on some tracks and horns on some tracks, little intervals, little interludes between the tracks and so on which I did really in an ambition to make them pay attention. I wanted people to not go, oh, it's another long-haired folk singer with an acoustic guitar. I wanted to to make it something different. So, uh, so some of the songs did get a bit, the production might have got a bit too complicated, in my opinion, in some instances. So with, with the next album, the Warner Brothers album, I wanted to keep it much simpler. So I put together a core band that we wanted to play on everything. And I knew we wanted to use Danny Korchmar, our mutual friend, uh, on guitar because we both loved him and loved his playing. I found a drummer called Russ Kunkel who hadn't done studio work before other than a record he'd made as part of a band. And uh, I heard him play at a rehearsal and grabbed him and said, would you come play on this record? And then I had a, a kind of outside idea for the pianist because I'd always been a huge admirer of Carole King as a songwriter. I knew everything that Goffin and King and Greenfield and King had ever written. And it was, as you know, historically an extraordinary collection of great tunes. You know, she wrote Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow for the Shirelles when she was 18 and so on. And I, by then I'd also got to hear her demos of those songs and loved her piano playing. So luckily, Cooch was able to introduce me to Carol. And I asked her if she would consider coming and doing uh, some sessions for me just as a piano player even though she was this legendary, super big deal songwriter. And she agreed to come over to my house and meet James, who was staying with me in Los Angeles at the time. So she came and that was when they first met. And I encouraged them to sit down and play together. And it sounded great. So I'd asked her if she would play. Uh, and if you look on that album, Sweet Baby James, all the piano playing on that album is is Carol. So I put together that little core band and we worked together rehearsing at my house, which was uh, in Longwood Avenue. And then we would rehearse in, in the house in the afternoon and go into Sunset Sound in the evening and record two or three songs. So the whole thing was done in under two weeks. Well, I'm a steamroller, babe. I'm bound to roll all over you. Yes, I'm a steamroller now, babe. I'm bound to roll all over you. The sound of this record and how clean and pure and stripped down it was. And you had eight tracks, am I correct? Correct. It was eight tracks, yes. Yeah, so you didn't really do that much bouncing around. I mean, I do hear, you know, geeking out, I do hear some tape hiss and all the things that were of the, of the moment. But what was your direction as you're recording this record as a producer that it turned out to have such a flat, clean, unadorned sound. Well, I mean, yeah, I liked 
I like to make records that are fairly, where the parts are fairly well-defined. I mean, I think if I have a style, that's kind of it. Uh, Most Americans don't have a lot of extraneous stuff in there. Indeed, when I was being criticized, it was usually for, you know, is my records being too kind of clean and organized and pristine, you know, and that's, that's what that became the, the West coast thing. Um, But yes, I, I like arrangements that are fairly well thought out. And I wanted James's guitar parts, which are quite complicated in a brilliant way to be the, the, the centerpiece of the whole thing. So I would try, I was just trying my best to frame as clearly as I could the, the guitar part and the vocal that James had already written as it were. So, so that's why I didn't, I tried not to let any of that stuff get too complicated. Sail on home to Jesus, won't you good girls and boys? I'm all in pieces, you can have your own choice. But I can see a heavenly band full of angels and they're coming to set me free. I don't know nothing about the wild wind, but I can tell you that it's bound to be. Because I could feel it, child, yeah. Were you aware when you were in the studio that you you were creating a, a, you know a sound for James that was something that that people were going to follow up on 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 so many records in the future? No, no, I didn't think of it in those terms. I I thought I was I thought we were doing okay. I thought it was coming out well. I thought we were being reasonably successful in main, in keeping the essence of the song and not allowing the decoration the uh, the additions at any time to to detract but did i think in terms of what are people going to think of this years hence or you know any of that stuff no that wasn't on our minds at all the story of fire and rain and the upright bow bass yes that was james's idea uh though he doesn't remember it but it was i promise you um he we I'd used a variety of different bass players on the record, on playing electric bass. Randy Meisner played on some of it. John London played on some of it, and someone else, I think. And but on Fire and Rain, James had the idea that it would be a bowed bass, of just playing the roots of all those things, especially in the chorus. So it's da 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 da, only an octave lower on the bowed bass. And then I tried doubling it. Um, we double tracked the bass, which was considering you only had eight tracks, which, you know, took up a whole track. And the reason being that if you double a, ba- a bass, it gets a slightly flanged kind of feeling. If the bass player is very good, it's almost exactly in tune, but never quite. That's physically impossible. So you do get a bit of kind of flangey sound. And I wanted that. So, but the boat bass was James's idea. I think the double tracking was mine. And it was a guy called Bobby West. They, they, I asked this Bill and the studio people who was the best bow, you know, upright bass player in town. And they said, you want Bobby West, Bobby Wild Wild West. And I went, oh, okay, that clinches it, you know. And he actually arrived, this, this very elegant uh, African-American gentleman carrying his bass case. And on it was written in big letters, Bobby, quote, Wild Wild, unquote, West. And we went, we definitely hired the right guy. And he was great. He was really nice, totally got the song quickly, played the part perfectly. And uh, I don't know what he's up to these days, if he's still with us, I hope very much he is. He was a pleasure to work with, and I haven't seen him since. 
I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you and the other one that that I would be remiss if I if I didn't ask you to talk about is Sweet for 20G that you were out of time and you had to you needed another track. Well, we yes, we 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 were coming to the end of our the studio time we'd booked and James came to me and said that he didn't have any songs ready to record any more songs. And I said, "Oh, I thought you were working on 3." And he said, "Yes, but they don't seem to be going anywhere. They're not finished." So he and I said, well, play me the three segments that you've got. And he did. And I said, well, let's string them together. You know, let's join them up. And uh, if you listen, that song does consist of three entirely different sections in different tempos and different keys that have been joined together very skillfully by James. And it's the only James Taylor song I've ever had any input in the titling of. Because as I recall, it was my suggestion because he didn't know what to call it. And I said, call it Sweet for 20G. And because on delivery of the finished record, we got $20,000, which we were in desperate need of. So uh, that people have ascribed all kinds of mystical meanings to Sweet for 20G. It was simply a way of collecting our money and being able to pay our rent. You can say I want to be free. I can say someday I will So when you approach a project like this, you know, number one, obviously, did you sit and listen to the original tapes and check out what shape they were? And tell me a little bit about the process, because you obviously made some definitive decisions when you were remastering, you know, this and the other recordings. Yes, but actually, I didn't listen to the tapes in advance. No, Um, I was assured they had been checked out. You know, there was a team involved in this, Bill Inglot and, and Patrick and other people who, who were very much involved in this process. And I was assured the tapes are in good condition. If, if they would have needed baking or any of these obtuse processes, that would have been done and we would have transferred them at that point and mixed from the digital. But we were able, fortunately, to mix from the actual original um, analog mixed wow. tapes. Not not the eight tracks, the, the the mix. And the first time I listened to them was in the studio with Bernie. As you know, as you correctly state, Bernie is the 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 expert on this kind of stuff now. You know, the, there are a few people who've mastered, especially the art of of vinyl mastering. Doug Sachs was one, and he sadly died a couple of years ago now. And and Bernie is another. And uh, it's a rare, you know, an uh, an, an art. And Bernie is a, a master of it. So, but yes, the first time I got to hear the tapes was in the studio. And it was, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't listened to the records in any form for quite a while, as on a CD or even a ghastly MP3 or anything, because I don't go around listening to records I made a billion years ago much. And so, but listening to them in that pristine form, listening to them, with as close as we could humanly get to the sound we were making in the studio 50 years ago or whatever it was, uh, 
was an extraordinary experience because it does take you back and you very specifically remember visually as well as auditorily that you know exactly what it was like when you made the record in the first place and you, you remember oh that's that pedal steel like we had trouble with or you know that's the bass note we had to fix or whatever you know little bits of memory come drifting back to you across the seas of time and it was fascinating you know i i, I found the process nostalgic and exhilarating at the same time. And then, of course, Bernie was able to do things you can do now that you couldn't do then. Even though we only did analog stuff, we didn't do anything digital to it whatsoever. Analog technology has changed drastically since those days. And there's a lot of stuff you can do to make things imprint on the disc itself better. The mastering process itself has improved, both for CDs and for vinyl, in such a way that I'm confident these... um, these versions sound a very great deal better. And when I say better, I mean more like what we meant at the time. We could have been wrong. You don't have to like the way they sound. But I think these albums are much closer to what we and James meant when we made the records. So really the goal of this project was to bring people who are either, you know, remembering how great this album was or hearing it for the first time to bring them what you heard through the monitors at Sunset Sound as you were creating this record. Exactly. The mission was to to make what people took home with them even better sounding than it, than it had been all those years ago by taking advantage of the fact that technologically and for some other reasons, you can now get closer to what we heard in the studio than you could then because the technology of actually making records and making CDs even, and certainly making high-res digital files has all improved. How reverent and old school of you. (laughs) Yes, and I'm not old school at all, by the way, in in principle. I mean, I get people going to me, oh, you're so lucky you grew up in the age of tape, and, you know, I'd like to make a record. Will you produce my record and do it all on tape? To which I say no. Uh, Thank you. Right. Because... People forget. They think tape is wonderful. They forget it was these huge heavy reels you carried around. Every time you played it, it got a little bit worse. It was a a nightmare. You know, all that stuff with azimuth and tones. And I'm very happy to see the back of all of that. So I'm not old school by instinct. But in this case, I'm old school because it's an old record. And that's how we made it. So I respect what we did back then. But... uh, I don't think it holds the key to the future or anything like that. Sunny sky sleeps in the morning. He doesn't know when to rise. He closes his weary eyes upon the day. Look at him yawning. Throwing his morning hours away. He knows how to ease down slowly. Everything is fine in the end. Let's move on to Mudslide Slim. How did you approach the sophomore recording? I mean, because obviously fire and rain really hit. So did anybody feel pressure for it to be as good as the first? Yes, I suppose we felt some pressure. But, you know, I was young and confident. You just kind of go, oh, we'll make another record. It'll be good too, you know. I don't remember feeling any sense of panic about how do we match Sweet Baby James because we thought we had some really good songs for Mudslide Slim. Plus, we had not only all the good James songs, but we had um, You've Got a Friend as well. I did a little research, and I was intrigued that Mudslide Slim was released on March 16th, 1971, and Tapestry was released on February 10th that same year. 
Yes. Uh, you may know the story, but as I say, I'd introduced Carol and James. She came over to the house, played with James and so on. So she played on Sweet Baby James. When we were playing the troubadour, James did it once on his own. The next time he did it, we wanted to use the musicians who played on the record. So the next time we did the troubadour, I'd asked Carol if she would play with James at the troubadour, which was kind of impertinent, really, because she was, here's this very big deal songwriter who was also about, I knew, to make her own record as an artist. I asked if, since she played on the record, she would come and do this troubadour gig at which we were going to perform all the songs from Sweet Baby James, and she did. And it was during that week, actually, it was on the opening night, James, first of all, had, had said to Carol, look, why don't you, in addition to being the piano player in my band, if you just do that, no one's going to know who you are. They'll think you're just some little girl playing piano in the band. Do a little opening set. I know you haven't done performances on your own before. Do a short opening set. Just sing some of these songs. Sing Natural Woman and Up on the Roof and Will You Love Me Tomorrow and Chains and tell people you wrote them uh, and their minds will be completely blown, which they were. And she agreed to come play on the gig and agreed to do a little opening set. And it was on opening night at the Troubadour. We'd done our sound check in the afternoon. And then James and I were leaving the stage to let Carol do a sound check on her own to get ready for a little opening set. And it was at that sound check that Carol decided to run through a song she had finished writing the night before. And it was at that point that James and I sat in the balcony of the Troubadour watching Carol at the piano try out a brand new song called You've Got a Friend for the first time. And James and they turned to each other and looked at each other and kind of went, wow, you know, what was that? And uh, James fell in love with the song right away. So did I. And James asked Carol if she would teach it to him, which she did. And he started working on his version of it and adding in all the little James things and sus chords and hammerings on and stuff that make it sound like a James song. And it, I think it fell to me, or maybe it was James, I don't remember. One of us had to ask Carol subsequently, look, I know this is a real imposition, but would you consider letting us record it? And I'm sure you're going to record it too, because we knew she was about to make her own first solo record. And we were about to make our second album, Mudslide Slim. So we asked Carol, you know, what would you think? And of course, all the normal rules of show business would dictate that Carol would say no, you know, because I want that to be on my record. And said of which she said, I would be honored. Of course, James can record it. So that's how it happened that within weeks of each other, we were at Crystal Sound on Vine Street recording our version of You've Got a Friend, which Carol did not play on. There's no piano on the record. It was mostly James and Cooch playing acoustic guitars. The other secret weapon we did have was that but James's girlfriend at the time, Joni Mitchell, was there in the studio and she sang all the background parts, which is why they sound so fantastically great. But we did that version and within a week or two, I think after hours, but I'm not certain, Lou Adler at A&M Studios on La Brea produced the Carol King version of You've Got a Friend. And the miracle is, of course, that everybody came out a winner because James's record was number one all over the world and Carol's became a key track on Tapestry her album that broke every record in the book and sold a gazillion billion copies. So um, everyone lived happily ever after. Winter, spring, summer, or fall now All you got to do is call And I'll be there, yeah, yeah, yeah You've got a friend What other tracks on Mudslide Slim 
do you feel should have been equally so? Oh, yeah, I loved Love Has Brought Me Around. I loved riding on a railroad. Well, hey, mister, that's me, me up on the jukebox. I thought it should have been a country hit. I mean, that's essentially James's tribute to George Jones, that and Bartender's Blues. You know, he's a huge George Jones fan. It's got that vibe to it. Hey, mister, that's me up on the jukebox. I'm the one that's singing this sad song. Well, I'll cry every time that you slip in one more dime and let the boy sing the sad one one more time. This was also um, Kate Taylor was on the record. Yes, I love Kate singing. Gonna sell on down like a natural born man. I'm gonna live my life naturally. Till that day. Thunder's gonna roll and I know this has a sign of rain So I grab my bags and I pack my clothes And I'm back on the road again Back on the highway, yeah, yeah, yeah Back on the road Oh, that's right, I put the Memphis Horns on this record. I was a big Memphis Horns fan. So at this point, obviously, we were following up hits so we could do whatever we wanted. So I was going, I'm going to go to Memphis and put the Memphis horns on. And everyone went, great. And I did. <laughs> that was the kind of stuff you could only get away with on your second album. Hand me down my gold and crown and let me ride. Don't deny the highway in my soul. Jump and sing that silver thing that I feel inside Hallelujah, let that So One Man Dog, based on the pictures on the inner sleeve and obviously the tales that are told, you took a different approach. James wanted to try making an album in his house, so, so I decided to engineer it myself. Again, youthful bravado. You know, I was going to go, how hard can it be? You know, I stopped in New York and Phil Ramone gave me like one day of engineering lessons. <laughs> oh my I mean, goodness. I literally said to him, what mic shall I take with me? And he gave me a list. And that was about it. Where was the house? Martha's Vineyard. Oh, wow. Oh, in Martha's Vineyard. Well, James, James didn't like LA much. Still doesn't, I don't think. Um, we, he came here to record several, a couple of albums, but, you know, that's why it was always ironic when he was considered part of the California sound. And the whole California sound had nothing to do with California. You know, Linda was from Tucson. The Eagles were from Texas. And James was from the East Coast. So California had nothing to do with it. But we all ended up here. So I guess that's right. Do believe I'm going to clap my hands. I think I might tap my feet. Put together a one-man band. Take it walking on down the street. Have a one-man parade. Nobody needs to know Cause I'm right good And holding on to secrets And I don't When you were doing the remaster And you're listening to this record Compared to the first two What was your What was your feeling? What was your learning from that? I felt quite pleased with myself I mean, because I was going This one may sound distinctly worse Because I engineered it But I mean, we also Of course, I mixed it With some really good engineers So to make sure that it Sounded as good as it could But Considering that I really didn't know what I was doing, it sounds pretty good. Do me wrong, 
Tell me lies, but hold me tight And save your goodbyes for the morning light But don't let me be lonely tonight You were still James' manager throughout all of this, were you not? Yes, yes. So where was the moment where you decided to become his manager and no longer directly produce the records and bring in Lenny and others? James decided he'd like to try something different. And he knew Russ and Lenny, and we both knew Russ and Lenny, and liked them very much and thought they it would be fun to work with them for a change. So that was, that was what we decided to do. It was James's idea, but a, obviously a joint decision. And I still see Russ and, and Lenny from time to time and love them both. And I think they did a terrific job. I love both those records. So let's talk about Walking Man. I'm going to use one word, horns, with an exclamation point. It's not, to, I'll be honest, it's not, in, not my, one of my favorite James Taylor albums. I think it's really good. It's got some great songs on it. But there's a bit more kind of overt sort of jazzbo influence in that album, which, which I'm not sure is I necessarily love. But on the other hand, some people love it. I was reading a thing about this whole collection in The Economist, actually, this morning, and they pick out Walking Man is a particularly underrated and terrific album. So, But in the context of this remastering, of course, my intention was simply to make it sound as good as humanly possible. The one track that really did get radio play was the title track. Yeah, Walking Man is a great song, and I do like that track a lot. The strings on there are beautiful. I forget who did the arrangement. Maybe Spinoza. I don't know. But it, um, that is a terrific track. I like that one. Moving in silent desperation Keeping an eye on the Holy Land A hypothetical destination Say, who is this walking man? Let's get to 1975 and Gorilla. Interesting guests, Graham Nash, David Crosby, David Grisman. Well, Crosby and Nash, I mean, we thought of them as a unit. You know, if you want great vocal harmonies, you know, call up David and Graham. And uh, it totally worked. I mean, James and I both are fans and friends of both of them. I mean, Crosby and Nash, as I say, that was a duo. You know, you hired them to get that sound and they did it brilliantly. Off the coast of Africa, bound for South America, a world away from here. Here's a ship who sails the sea. Here's a man who's just like me, and I wish that I was there. I'm a lonely lighthouse, not a ship out in the night. The hit, a Motown cover. Yep. That was kind of interesting. How did James come to that? And and was there any awareness that you were going to take something that was was an iconic song and very much, look, James' version of it, I think that's the version they remember. You know, James is, as you know, a gigantic fan of American soul music in general, you know, be it Memphis or Motown or all of that stuff. Sam Cooke is one of his idols. Ray Charles is his idol. Marvin Gaye certainly is. So it's not a surprise that he loved singing that song. Yeah, you 
mean, first time I heard James that day in my flat in London, I it was immediately clear to me that, you know, you could call him a folk singer all he liked, but he, and there was something vaguely folky, perhaps, about the tonality of his voice. He had this rich baritone, but his phrasing was nowhere near any kind of folk music I'd ever heard. His phrasing was clearly coming from his idols, Sam Cooke and Ray Charles. And even his harmonic sense was coming from Manhattan's records and, and the R&B, you know, acapella groups and all that kind of stuff. There was nothing folky about it. And so I think it was probably that mixture of what appears to be folky, which is to say a beautiful tenor voice and an incredibly good finger-picking style, which, by the way, owed a lot to classical guitar playing as well. It was clear to me that he, was, he wasn't just listening to Dave Van Ronk at the time, he was listening, or Bob Dylan. He was listening to Segovia and Julian Bream and listening to a lot of R&B. So I think it was James synthesizing all those different influences that made him the, 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 the incredibly brilliant singer and player that and writer that he is. And that's what struck me that day in my flat when I very first heard him. Mexico was another key track on that record that, that got a lot of play. Yeah, and that's David Graham again on Mexico, sounding fantastic. Way down here, you need a reason to move. Feel a fool, running your state side. So the last record that is in this wonderful box set is in the pocket. Do you think there was a difference in tone based on what was going on in his life at that moment in time? I suppose so. I don't remember, as I say, what sort of life events were happening at this time. And I try to stay out of, you know, artists' personal lives as much as I can. Um, but obviously, there were moments in James's life where I had to get involved when he was, you know strung out and stuff and we had issues we had to address and I helped him to address them. Shower the people you love with love Show them the way that you feel Things are gonna work out fine if you only will Do as I say Shower the people you love with love Show them Back to Soul, his cover of Bobby Womack's Woman's Gotta Have It also was iconic. Oh, look, I play, I play tambourine on that record. No wonder it's good. For you, this must have been quite amazing to, you know, obviously to go back to this material and, and hear it again. When you're really listening to it, number one, do you remember things that were on the cutting room floor that you, you wish you put on these albums at all? No, I don't. I'm not aware of any really great stuff that we left off. There certainly aren't any like cool songs that we didn't have room for, any of that stuff. I wish there were. And you better believe Warner Brothers wished there were. But, um, <laughs> 
there's there's probably some outtakes, and the reason they're outtakes is is they're not as good as the take we used. Now they would be interesting to the serious James Taylor nerds, of whom there are quite a few. <laughs> yes, and uh, but generally speaking. I think we left things off because they weren't as good as the things we put on. So, no, there are no secret stashes of great material that we that that is sitting on the floor. So, what was you're there with Bernie and you're doing the mastering and you're listening to this? Was there a moment you just looked at each other? And I know that that moment in a mastering session where something comes on, you're listening to it and you just go, "Wow!" Were there any of those that you remember? I'll be honest. D- during the mastering process. Yes. I mean, hearing the music again, in every case, brought back specific memories of recording that song or overdubbing that solo or mixing that vocal. But giant wow moments, not so much. It was more of an overall rediscovery. Because honestly, when you're doing that, most of the time, you are actually working. I mean, Bernie is going, which do you think? And I have two alternate EQs on the vocal that you listen to and compare and which one sounds the way you remembering your way you remember wanting it to sound and so on. So most of the time was actually devoted to detailed decision-making work. And overall, there was a sense of, wow, it's great to hear all this stuff again. And wow, this all sounds really good. And above all, you know, a rediscovery of, you know, James is really pretty good, isn't he? For our listeners to know as a close is that if they're coming in expecting this whiz-bang miracle thing. That's not the reason to buy this set, right? No, I mean, I'd be very surprised if it doesn't sound considerably better and clearer. Oh, it but does. Will it, it, will it sound... It does. Okay, good. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> but oh, we're all wasting our time. But, <laughs> but at the same time, is it a miraculous difference? Like, No, of course not, because we did the best we could when we mastered the records way back in the day. So... You know, the old ones sound pretty good, but I I do genuinely believe that the combination of a new attention to detail and modern analog technology has enabled us to make these records sound better than they ever have before. But is it a night and day difference? No, I'm sure it's not. Is it a noticeable, significant and important difference? I'm sure it is. So all we are trying to do now is reinforce and clarify the decisions we made all those years ago. I think you're right. I mean, that was when the the key decisions were made. If Fire and Rain had been played with sticks instead of brushes or we'd mic the drums in a more conventional way rather than close miking each tom, things would be very different. But But it's knowing that and listening to that on the original tape and your listening pleasure will be improved if you uh, hear a, a clearer, better, more, you know, hi-fi version. So it makes it a bit more fun to listen to. But honestly, good music, you know, you can listen to Mozart on a bloody cylinder and it still sounds great. So in the crunch, the remastering is not as important as how great the music is in the first place. But we know that. And we know that this music is great. We know that James is a man of extraordinary brilliance as a composer and a player and a singer. And all we're trying to do is add add that last, you know, little bit of, 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 of perfection to, to the way you listen to it. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Where do your golden rainbows end? Why is the song I sing so sad? Dreaming the dreams I've dreamed, my friend. Loving the love I love to love to love. 
Elrich, I don't think it gets any better than that if you're a James Taylor fan, or even if you're a casual James Taylor listener. A lot of great insight from Peter, the recording of these albums, and it's great to hear who played on it, where they did it. It was nice to get a fly-on-the-wall perspective, the behind-the-scenes story from none other than Peter Asher himself. It's the complete Warner Brothers albums, 1970 to 1976, James Taylor. Newly remastered versions of the six legendary studio albums that Taylor recorded for Warner Brothers. It's a six CD, six LP, and digital version box sets all available now. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.